Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Revolution 250 podcast. I am Bob Ellison. I chair the Rev 250 advisory group. I also teach history at Suffolk University in Boston. And today we're going to talk about one of the most important events leading up to the revolution and probably one we haven't thought about a lot because you can't do a big reenactment of the things happening in 1772, 1773 involving the committees of correspondence probably a phrase we've heard. We know that there were committees of correspondence, but that is often the extent of our knowledge. Now, in the wake of another alarming piece of news from London in the fall of 1772, and a wake of news about one of the most important issues that bedeviled the American colonists, particularly the Bostonians in the fall of 1772, Samuel Adams arranged for a town meeting on the 28th of October of 1772. So right around the 250th anniversary is what we're celebrating right now. A town meeting to consider how to respond to Parliament's plan to pay the judges in Massachusetts, to establish a salary for judges. In the wake of the Boston Tea, Boston Massacre in 1770, you'll recall the British soldiers were acquitted, but there is an alarm in London. What happens the next time some crown officials get into trouble in the American colonies over in fulfilling their duty? What do we do? Maybe we should make sure judges are independent of the mob, and so Parliament will establish a salary for judges. Now, for Samuel Adams and for others who thought seriously about these issues in Massachusetts, this isn't going to make the judges independent. It's going to make them dependent, dependent on the will of Parliament or of the British Crown or the British Ministry. And also the Massachusetts Charter of the early 1690s stipulates that the assembly will pay the judges. Really a very important constitutional issue but one, you can see it's going to be difficult to get great popular support. I mean, we can see other issues um, burning the public consciousness, but who pays the judges seems like a rather obscure one, but Adams recognized how important it was. Making the judges dependent on the British ministry makes them independent of the people for whom they're meeting out justice. So. On the 28th of October of 1772, Boston's town meeting met and it appointed a committee of correspondence, a committee of 21 members. And actually it met on the 2nd of November to appoint the committee on the 28th of October. They said, yes, this is alarming. We'll have to meet again on November 2nd, which they do. And at that meeting, they appoint this committee of 21, which they call a committee of correspondence. And they ask this committee to report on the 20th of November. And on November 20th, the committee of 21 issues its report to the Massachusetts, to the Boston town meeting. And this is a very carefully drafted report. It runs to about 40 some odd printed pages at the time. And it's in three sections. The first section is on the rights of the colonists. The second section is on infringements and violations of these rights. And the third section is a letter to the other towns of Massachusetts, asking them what they think. And the first section is actually drafted by James Otis, Josiah Quincy, 
and Samuel Adams. So they formed the committee to draw up what are the rights of the colonists. And they consider the rights, or they lay out the rights in three ways. The rights of the colonists as men. What are our fundamental natural rights as men? And that's fairly straightforward. The uh, Richard Brown from the University of Connecticut wrote really the best treatment of this about 50 years ago at the time of the bicentennial. And he lays out what is the nature of the report. And one reason historians hadn't really studied the report in great detail is it doesn't say anything new the way you know, Otis's rights to the British colonists from 1765 does, or the Declaration of Independence does. It's very straightforward, the articulation of what Bostonians thought were their rights as people. And remember, the committee is not drafting this to issue some new thing. They want some ground that everyone can stand on. So what are our rights as men? Well, the rights to life, liberty, and property, and the right to defend those rights and also the right to remain in a state of nature as long as you choose. So that's one area of right. Then second, what are our rights as Christians? This is a shorter section, only about a page. It talks about the right to worship and also fundamentally says these rights are given to us by the great lawgiver of the New Testament, the liberty of conscience being a primary one and also quotes William Blackstone saying that these are the rights that have been wrested from King John by the sword under the Magna Carta. And of course the Magna Carta establishes your right not to be taxed without your consent, which is going to be fundamental in what's gonna come next. And then finally, what are our rights as subjects? So think about this. They're articulating their rights as subjects of the British crown. And this is a right not to be taxed without your consent and also a restriction on the legislative power. The supreme power, if the, if the parliament has that, cannot take from a man his property without his consent. So fundamental rights we have as men, as Christians, and as subjects. It's a relatively, well, it's about a 17-page or so, about a 10-page brief on what are our rights here in Massachusetts. Then a longer section follows on how have these rights been infringed or have there been infringements and violations of these rights. This section we know was written by Joseph Warren, our friend from Roxbury, William Greenleaf, a member of the Sons of Liberty, and Dr. Thomas Young. Young was a doctor from New York who had come to Boston relatively recently and has become very active in town politics. And in this section, there are 12 infringements on our rights listed. Parliament has assumed the power to legislate for us. Now, again, this is not a power the Massachusetts people are going to concede that Parliament can do this. We have our own assembly that can do this and Parliament has exerted a power to raise a revenue, and this deprives men of their earnings without their consent. Now, that whole idea of you being entitled to control your earnings is also going to be fundamental in another area, of course, because that's why we're going to challenge the institution of slavery. If we can't have our earnings taken from us without our consent, how can someone who's enslaved have his or her earnings taken without their consent? 
they're going to see that correlation. Many of the towns will report on this when they respond to Boston's call. And then the next two talk about new offices being created, specifically the customs collectors and other offices being created here and sent here with an unconstitutional power, the power of search and seizure, the power to look at what find what property is being seized from us. So these are two more violations of our fundamental rights. Next, not only are new offices, offices being created and officers sent, but fleets and armies are being sent here to enforce the Revenue Acts, which are a violation of our fundamental rights. And then we get to why we are upset at this particular moment about these things. And it's because this revenue is going to be used to pay the governor, the lieutenant governor, as well as the judges. So we've established this revenue, which is unconstitutional. We've sent over officers to collect the revenue. We've then sent over military force to collect the revenue. And the purpose of this revenue is to pay out the judges and the others. Now, uh, Samuel Adams had warned that the Massachusetts Constitution or the Massachusetts Charter, which had said the legislature will pay the governor, this is to establish an equilibrium because the governor is appointed by the crown, but is then paid by the assembly and that establishes a balance. But here, if the governor is not only paid by the crown, but chosen by the crown, but paid by the crown, he is independent of the legislature. You know, they acknowledge a need for the governor to be something of a check, but not to be a check beyond the control of those whom he is checking. And then fought next, the parliament through its ministers has instructed the governor to treat the legislature as being a mere ministerial engine. That is the purpose of the Massachusetts Assembly is not to legislate for the people of Massachusetts, but instead is to carry out the directives issued in London by the ministers. So they are kind of middle managers here rather than the voice of the, their constituents. And then creating the courts of vice admiralty, which will try people for uh, violating the various smuggling laws, tax laws, and so on. This is another violation on our fundamental rights. We're also restrained from operating mills, slitting mills for producing iron, as well as British laws to protect British manufacturers. Americans are not allowed to ship wool on vessels. And this is a way to protect English manufacturing as well as you know, stipulating that you can't operate rolling mills, slitting mills for producing iron. These are ways that parliament and the ministers are violating or are infringing on our natural rights. And next, there's an act parliament has passed for the better protection of dockyards, et cetera. And this act gives to the ministry the power to take anyone who is accused of um, harming a dockyard or in any way interfering in crown, off, in crown policy to London for trial. You see, it's a nice sounding act. We Everyone wants to protect dockyards, but what it really means is we're going to take people off to London. Of course, they're thinking about the Gatsby back in, in, also in 1772, the destruction of the British revenue cutter Gatsby. They don't want to make sure that doesn't happen again. Anyone who, who does something like that is going to be shipped off to London for trial. 
And that, of course, takes away your fundamental right to be tried by a jury of your peers. We're going to see a lot of the things that come up in this Boston report. We will see protected later on when uh, folks get around to drawing up constitutions for their states and for the United States. And then there's the threat of an American bishop. The Church of England and the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel had wanted to, had been thinking about sending an Anglican bishop to America. Now, the dangerous thing here isn't just that there's a bishop who's going to be overseeing Anglican priests in America. Bishops in England also have authority in things other than ecclesiastical. Bishops are political appointments in London, in England. To become a member, a bishop in the Church of England, you need to have the support from the prime minister, from the crown. So it's a political office, and you also do have certain political powers. So having an Anglican bishop, that official isn't just responsible for the Church of England ministers and congregations. He is also going to have something of a civil role in the state in which he is a bishop. This is going to be an issue. Um, later on after the revolution when we do finally get Episcopal bishops in America. It's a contentious issue. It's somewhat less contentious, but here it's the threat of an established bishop. And the Boston report says only our general court has temporal and spiritual power. Interesting. And then finally, altering the bounds of provinces. This is something that the Massachusetts uh, Boston town meeting sees as being really an infringement on our rights. And there had been, there were border disputes going on between Massachusetts and New York over the Western boundary, as well as between among Massachusetts, New York, and New Hampshire over the New Hampshire grants, this territory between New Hampshire and New York, which were in contest between um, New York and New Hampshire, as well as the people who had moved there from Connecticut who wanted to call the area New Connecticut. They had moved up the Connecticut River into this area with grants from the state of the province of New Hampshire, which is why Bennington established under the authority of Benning Wentworth is established actually right on the New York border. But then Parliament or the ministry has infringed on this and determining where the borders will be of these different provinces without any real discussion among the provinces. So these are the grievances or these are the infringements on our natural rights, which part two um, sets out. And again, Joseph Warren, William Greenleaf and Thomas Young drafted these problems. And then finally, there's a five-page letter to the other towns of Massachusetts. And this is written by Dr. Benjamin Church, William Powell, and Nathaniel Appleton. And this set, it doesn't tell the towns, hey, this is our platform. It really wants the towns to think about what all of this means. And they set out again why at this particular moment we're thinking about these things. That is, we have the parliament and the ministry making rules for us and changing the constitutional nature of the system, and parliament is exceeding its powers and acknowledging that in the British system, parliament is supreme. Remember, there had been a civil war in the 17th century, in the 1600s, about parliament versus the crown. 
Parliament had won that. And most of these folks in Massachusetts see that victory for Parliament as a step forward in the path of liberty. But what happens when the Parliament itself exceeds its power? That is really a dangerous thing. What do you do when Parliament exceeds its power, when this body, which is all-powerful, is going to exercise its power in a bad way? How do you withstand? What can withstand the attacks of mere power? The uh, letter asks. And what? so what can we do? What can preserve the liberties of the subject when the barriers of the Constitution are taken away? And also they say, we're not afraid of poverty, but we disdain slavery. Again, seeing slavery as the end of all of this. If parliament can take away our, our, our property without our consent, what can't it do? It's really an alarming thing. And so at the end of November, the town has this printed up, Eads and Gill, the printing office on Queen Street, print this up and send it out to the towns for their consideration. And among those who also see it, of course, is Governor Hutchinson. And Governor Hutchinson and the assembly have been going back and forth about paying the judges and so on. And that's going to become another big issue, who is going to pay the judges. But Hutchinson really sees the danger in this. He really sees, he, he's also from Massachusetts. Remember, his family's been here since the 1630s. He's an historian. He is writing a history of Massachusetts Bay. He's working on, had been working on the third volume when the mob attacked his house in 1765. And his elevation to governor in 1770 and 71 was seen as a real way to get over these problems between Governor Bernard and the assembly. But Hutchinson is also thinking thoughtfully about the nature of government. And he sees, as this uh, report does, yeah, parliament is supreme. Parliament wants to govern the empire, and thanks to this system, we in the British Empire enjoy liberty. And in order to enjoy liberty, we need to have order. He really sees order as being threatened here by the um, towns. Remember, his, his, his house is the one that was attacked by a mob. So we kind of can see the limits to that whole idea of liberty. Now, the towns, of course, when they respond to the Boston Town Meetings report, are going to see liberty as the essential thing to order. They both want order, but Hutchinson sees order as essential to liberty in the order imposed by Parliament. The towns see liberty as essential to order. We'll get to Hutchinson's response in a minute, but meanwhile, the towns are responding. Uh, something like by April, about half of the towns have responded and most see, most agree with the Boston town meeting. Well, why don't I tell you how Hutchinson responds because he does this in an interesting way. It actually in one of the most disastrous responses in the history of responses to potential political conflicts. He calls in a, a meeting of the general court, meets in Cambridge. There had been a smallpox outbreak in Boston, so it did make some sense to meet in Cambridge as opposed to in Boston. But Hutchinson also wanted to meet in Cambridge to get away from the potential disruption by the Boston mob. 
So they meet in Cambridge, and on January 6th of 1773, Hutchinson delivers a lecture to the assembly. Now, as I mentioned, Hutchinson's an historian, and maybe had he lived at a later time, he might have become a history professor. He's writing a history book, a three-volume history of Massachusetts Bay. And one thing history professors are really good at is lecturing. It's a terrible skill for a legislator, for a politician. By the way, this is always my example of why you should never vote for a college professor for anything. We always know we're the only person in the room worth, worth listening to. And we also know you are really smart when what you say at the end of our lecture pretty much agrees with what we have just said. And if for some reason it doesn't, what we'll do is repeat what we just said using smaller words and speaking more slowly. So Hutchinson delivers a lecture on January 6th of 1773 to the Massachusetts Assembly, explaining to them what their role in the British Empire is. And their role in the British Empire is somewhat limited. The Parliament is the governing force in the British Empire. The Massachusetts Assembly can't claim that it governs Massachusetts because then what's Parliament's role? The only thing the Massachusetts Assembly can do is act in the kind of uh, middle management fashion that the um, ministers in, in London wanted them to. And they either could accept that Parliament is supreme or they could declare their independence. There really wasn't an alternative here. This, Hutchinson thinks, is a very clear explanation of where they stood. And of course, just in terms of political theory, maybe it is. In terms of practical politics, this is disastrous. Because remember, the Boston report had talked about our rights as subjects, subjects of the British crown. And now Governor Hutchinson has said, well, your only choice is to accept Parliament's role or declare your independence. We hadn't said we wanted to be independent. We said we wanted to govern ourselves, but be part of the British Empire. And it's because we're part of the British Empire, we have these rights. Hutchinson says, no, no, no. Yes, it's because you're part of the British Empire, you have more rights than you would if you were in the French Empire, or the Spanish Empire, or the Dutch Empire. And he said, I pray that we'll never experience what it would be like to be part of one of those empires. He knows that independent Massachusetts could not sustain itself, and it would get swallowed up by one of these other empires, and then we would lament what we lost when we left the British Empire. But he's really telling them something that it might be true, but it's certainly not what they can go back and tell their constituents. Hey, you know, we only have a choice of being submitting to parliament or being independent. So that's the governor's response. And by the way, he is hearing from some of his friends in distant parts of Massachusetts that, you know, people don't want to go along with this crazy idea from Boston. And, but they're mis mis misleading him into thinking this. As I said, by April, some 114 of the town, there are 260 towns in Massachusetts, have responded to the Boston call. Hutchinson's thought is the town should not respond at all. I mean, what power does Boston have to tell these other towns what to do? Town meetings shouldn't be to discuss general affairs of the empire. They should be to decide about where roads should be in the town or where you should build a school or other things like that. Not what is the proper relationship of Massachusetts to the British Empire and these other questions. I mean, what are our fundamental rights as subjects or as Christians or as men? Those aren't things the town meeting should be deliberating on. 
But most of the town meetings decide that is what they should be deliberating on, and they do. Now, about a third of the towns who respond had never either never responded at all to any kind of provincial affair, or had only done so once. In 1768, there was an issue over um, Governor Bernard's suppression of the assembly. Other than that, most of the towns had never said anything. They were doing what Hutchinson wanted, just going along deciding on local affairs. But this does get them to think about these bigger issues. And in this, the towns really are articulating their understanding of constitutional roles. They differ from the governor profoundly. In some ways, they differ from the town of Boston. But the towns are really doing this in a way. It's implicit in their responding that they feel they have this duty to do this. And they argue that the only real basis for British authority is the Charter of 1691, which does not give Parliament any power. It gives the Assembly power. It gives the King or Queen power to appoint a governor. But other than that, that you know, Parliament doesn't have any role in this. Marblehead suggests that every town create a committee of grievance or there be a general committee of grievance to watch out for infringements on our liberties. Ipswich says, why don't we send our own agent to London to argue this for us? And some of the towns make really striking declarations. The town of Newton, which is just west of Boston, says that in the cause of liberty, no good man can stay silent. So they see this as a fundamental thing and they have to speak up you really see the towns coming forward and articulating where they stand in relationship to the British Constitution. Three towns in Worcester County, Leicester, um, Spencer, and Paxton, suggest opening up a correspondence with sister provinces. That is not just have this a debate within Massachusetts, but why don't we talk to the other provinces in North America about their relationship with the British crown? The town of Peterson says we should call on, we, that is, those of us who love liberty, should call on some Protestant power in Europe or powers in Europe to intercede with the mother country. Very interesting idea that we see this problem with the mother country. We want to remain with the mother country. Maybe we need some arbitrator from Denmark or the Netherlands to tell the British crown what it's doing wrong. Uh, the town of Chatham on Cape Cod, and this is something you see other of the towns saying, says that Boston is the metropolis. You have there all of the laws, you have various bills of rights and acts. That is, you have all these records up there. Why don't you use them, look into the records, to save this distressed people from ruin? You do see in many of these towns an acknowledgement that, yeah, Boston is really the leader in this. But they're not saying, hey, we're just going to listen to everything Boston says, but looking for leadership from the town of Boston. The town of Lenox out in uh, the western part of the province says, we are the youngest town. We're only five years old. So we really look to the adults to guide us here. The older towns are like our parents. And in many cases, the people of Lenox had come from these older towns. Now, two of the towns, at least, Gorham and Medfield, Gorham up in Maine, call on the assembly also to look into the institution of slavery. That is drawing this direct connection between 
Parliament's power to take away our property and the institution of slavery. There had been some petitions by enslaved people to the assembly in the previous year. There will be more. So this becomes part of the overall issue. And some of the towns call for a uh, day of fasting and prayer, a way of resolving this. And if it's not resolved, there are some threats. The town of Belchertown says, uh, what happened to General Braddock back on the Monongahela could happen to redcoats who come to try to enforce the law here. And the, up in Maine, the towns of York and Lincoln say that it's not just our men who know how to shoot and load. Women also know how to load and shoot. So you're not just going to be facing a few with ill-trained militia. You're going to be facing the body of the people who see their rights being infringed by the parliament's misguided attempt to change the rules and impose its will on us. So the Committee of Correspondence in Boston first issues this uh, report to the other towns, and then you have the other towns creating committees of correspondence to correspond with this committee from Boston, this committee of 21. And often they will be like-minded folks in these other towns in Massachusetts who will be corresponding with one another. This really helps to establish a whole network of communication throughout the province of like-minded folks who agree fundamentally on their rights as, English, as subjects, as, as men, as, and as Christians, and also can see these infringements. And then the Massachusetts Assembly also creates a committee of correspondence to do what the town of... Um, towns of Lester, Paxton, and uh, Spencer had suggested, corresponding with the other provincial assemblies. And so by the end of 1774, all of the other provinces in British North America, all of their assemblies have created committees of correspondence to write to each other, to communicate with each other about what is happening. This is gonna be very, very important when in 1774, the British crown shuts down the port of Boston and suspends the Massachusetts government. You've already established this communications network so that what's happening in Massachusetts doesn't stay in Massachusetts. It's really a brilliant strategy. And Samuel Adams is in many ways the architect of this, but also recognizes that it's not just Samuel Adams and the Boston Committee or the Massachusetts Committee telling everyone else what to think. They're gathering ideas and drawing in this political consensus here about the nature of the threat to liberty, the fundamental nature of the threat to liberty. And it's not just an issue about taxes, uh, which I think uh, even the British government sees, it's really an issue of power and who will govern us and how do you confront this power? And Adams realized you couldn't simply do it through the Massachusetts Assembly because the governor could suspend that. You really need it through the informed engagement of the people of Massachusetts. It's a fundamental idea here, you see, being articulated by the Matt Boston Committee of Correspondence and then by the Massachusetts committees and the committees in the other towns which share in this. So the 58 towns, as I said, organized committees of correspondence. And this forms a loose informal network throughout Massachusetts. You know, some places 
less so than others. A couple of the towns, Middleborough in, uh, down in Plymouth County and uh, Springfield out on the Connecticut River, their Governor Hutchinson has quite a lot of friends or supporters and they don't go along with this. But in a couple of the other towns where uh, Cambridge and Roxbury, where the governor's friends tried to stop the town from acting, they're outvoted. And in the wake of Governor Hutchinson's speech to the assembly, he's reading in the newspapers, he thinks the towns have stopped responding to Boston. They really haven't. He really thinks he's quieted things down with his lecture. Often a history professor thinks he's pretty much solved everything with his lecture. Um, he's going to be quite surprised when he gets the results of the exam. People in London aren't happy with Governor Hutchinson because, you know, so far no one had mentioned independence, but he simply he said, sets that out as your choice. You can either submit or you can declare independence. Well, the folks who sent to the assembly by their towns, even if they had kind of agreed with the governor in some things, realized the towns didn't send me simply to be a yes man to someone else. They sent me to be their representative. So this is what's happening in 1772. It's a really the critical moment in creating the American Revolution. As the Boston town meeting creates a committee of correspondence to begin communicating with other towns in Massachusetts about this fundamental idea of liberty and of your relationship to government and who decides. And another big issue here is the town's right to instruct representatives. As I said, one of the real grievances was Parliament was instructing the governor, and the governor also didn't think the people in the towns had the power to instruct their representatives to tell them what to think. And this, to a voter in Massachusetts, is the essential thing. Of course we instruct the people we've elected. This is why they have a one-year term. It's also why we built a gallery in the, in the State House so that we can watch what they're doing. And yes, the people do have the right to instruct their representatives and tell them how to vote. The thinking on the other side is, no, 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 you've elected us because we are the wisest people and you should simply let us do what the wise people do. Fundamentally different idea. And by the way, it's at this time that um, Tom, John Hancock commissions John Singleton Copley to paint the great portrait of Samuel Adams. The original hangs in the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. There's a copy in Faneuil Hall. And in that portrait, Adams is looking right at us. And one hand is rest is pointing to the Massachusetts Charter of 1691. The charter spells out what are the roles of the governor and the assembly. His hand is resting on the minutes of the town of Boston. That is the record of the town meeting. And remember, the town meeting in which all of the adult Protestant taxpaying men voted. That may seem like a limitation to us, but that's actually more people than were entitled to vote than anywhere else in the British Empire. So his hand is resting on that, and his hand is holding the folded up instructions of the town of Boston, clearly written on this, instructions of the town of Boston. So Adams is their representative not because they trust him in everything, but because they know they can tell him how they, what they think. That is the fundamental idea here you see in these committees of correspondence. And it's an idea that the people do instruct their governors, their representatives, 
you'll recall, well, we don't need to talk about Edmund Burke and his theory on this. Simply, Burke said that your representative owes you not his industry only, but his judgment. And he betrays rather than serves you if he sacrifices it, that is his judgment, to your opinion. Well, he said that to the electors of Bristol in England, and they promptly voted for someone who would um, sacrifice his judgment to their opinion. So if you, go to, if you decide to go into public life, don't tell people you're electing me because I'm smarter than you are and I expect you to tell, I expect you simply to listen to what I say. See how far you get, you can do it as an experiment. Anyway, the Massachusetts towns are instructing their representatives and that is the way to protect their liberty, which they've seen violated by the British crown. So thank you for listening to this uh, podcast on Massive Boston Town Meeting and its committees of correspondence, the Boston Report, which is really the event that's going to usher in the real trouble in 1773, 250 years ago now. And I want to thank Jonathan Lane, our producer, as well as our many listeners out there in places like Port Chester, New York, Houston, Texas, as well as El Paso, Texas. Uh, Pittsfield, Massachusetts, a town that responded in 1772, 1773, Gross Point, Michigan, uh, Federal Way, Washington. I want to thank you all for listening, and I uh, thank everyone else in our network, and we will now be piped out on the road to Boston.